hello, and welcome to the Jacobite Podcast. Episode 9, William and the Boyne. Last time, we left off with Schomburg and his troops finally landing in Ireland. Rather than launch an all-out assault on Dublin, Schomburg advocated a more cautious approach, as he was a more careful commander. Instead, pushing to attack the Jacobite fortifications at Carrickfergus, with the Jacobites surrendering on August 28th. This peaceful surrender was, however, marred with the Jacobite forces being made to run a gauntlet of Williamite troops, as well as women who were jeered at, threatened and stripped of their possessions and in some cases clothes by angry Ulster troops ready for some retribution. It took Schomburg himself riding on horseback up and down the lines with pistol drawn, threatening to shoot anyone who committed violence on surrendering forces to dissuade the troops from spilling blood. William's troops then turned their attention to Newry, preparing to assault the Duke of Berwick and his army. The Duke had already pulled out of town, though, putting it to the torch before he left. By the time Schomburg arrived, his army arrived in Newry to find a burnt-out shell with abandoned cannons thrown into the river to deny them to the Williamites. Eventually, the army made camp at Dundalk in late September. Sitting 50 miles north of Dublin, Schomburg's men sourced what supplies they could and settled in. Worryingly, some of the men were complaining of suffering from a sickness, which in all likelihood was the beginnings of dysentery. This would become a major issue for Schomburg later, but for now, he had no idea how dangerous this would be. In the south of the country, the Jacobites were aware of the arrival of Schomburg and were preparing to defend against his anticipated moves towards Dublin, but interfactional squabbling meant that scores had to be settled. Certain members at court had begun to scapegoat the Earl of Melfort for his handling of Derry and his lack of focus on Ireland, and it was at that point that James's Viceroy Tyrconnell decided to return to court and stick the knife in his old adversary. Melfort was reviled by the Irish and French factions in Dublin for his lack of knowledge of Ireland and his seeming desire to abandon the campaigns there in favour of his Scottish homeland. Melfort was questioned on his every move and policy, with attacks becoming so personal eventually Melfort retaliated with accusations that Tyrconnell's wife Frances had slept with the French war minister and indulged in taking funds from the cause. Tyrconnell was riled to the point of threatening murder on Melfort, who was spirited out of France by James to avoid his life becoming forfeit. Melfort would write to James, complaining bitterly of his treatment at court, and advised that those around James needed to be watched, in particular Davos, von Rosen, and the Irish contingent. Still kept on in his post, Melfort had been sidelined, and Tyrconnell was back in the heart of power. Political wrangling aside, the Jacobite army moved towards Drogheda, which was the last major population centre between Schomburg and Dublin. James and his advisers were supremely confident that with one big push and a decisive victory, the Jacobites could push William's forces out of Ireland, return and subdue the rebellious Ulster province, gaining control of the landmass to be used as foothold for a potential restoration of King James VII and II. Despite French reservations with the strategy, King James pressed on with a brand new set of recruits rounded up by Tyrconnell. In all likelihood, most of these troops were made up of the men Tyrconnell had been forced to disband at the time of the Siege of Derry, but this show of loyalty was enough to restore King James's Viceroy into the royal good graces. Now, King James had an enlarged army that, whilst supplies and logistics were still a struggle for, was ready to fight. Jacobite forces were led by their king to the River Fane, located half a mile from Schomburg's camp, and attempted to goad the elderly commander into an engagement, even riding within cannon range. But Schomburg didn't take the bait, 
and eventually the Jacobites withdrew again to Drogheda. Opinion was divided as to why the Williamites did not engage, with their supporters arguing that Schomburg had been careful not to be drawn into a trap away from his own defensive lines, preferring to fight the fight on his own terms. Jacobite detractors, on the other hand, claimed Schomburg was a coward, and that King James had decided to return to base after bulking at how many would have to die to take the camp, preferring to be the king of mercy and magnanimity. Whilst Schomburg stayed in camp, his army was plagued with the continuing outbreak of dysentery that had been reported by some troops when he first established the camp. It was most likely caused by the poor muddy conditions and the lack of clean drinking water, and was currently cutting a swathe through Schomburg's army. Now, in hindsight, it might not have been the best idea establishing a camp in the Irish countryside in the approaching winter, given that a thousand men died of the illness plaguing the camp, before Schomburg eventually packed up and moved to the relative safety of Newry. By the end of 1689, 6,000 troops had been killed by sickness across the country without a shot being fired. When news of this death reached England, Parliament demanded answers, and throughout November, parliamentary committees condemned not only the lack of supplies, but also Schomburg's handling of the situation, and requested King William, as chief war planner, fix it. William was obviously a fan of the old adage of, if you want something done right, best to do it yourself, as plans were then put in motion for William to go to Ireland and personally take command of the army to take the fight to King James. In March 1690, just as the war campaign season was restarting, France's latest shipment of troops arrived in Dublin. 6,000 troops came to town, headed by the Duc de Lausanne, a short, unkempt and rather pompous 50-something officer, whose claim to fame at this point was masterminding the flight of King James's wife, Mary of Modena, and his son, James Francis Edward, to France. A grateful King James appointed him as commander-in-chief, at which point Lausanne began demanding military control of Dublin from the city's military governor. When the French transport fleet arrived, it took 5,500 troops to fight on the continent, Ambassador de Vaux and Marshal von Rosen. With any rival power base now removed, Tyrconnell and the Irish Jacobite faction began to flex their muscles. Reports that began making their way to Schomburg, delivered by three Protestant dignitaries to his camp, accused the army of spending the winter drinking in the capital's taverns and spending most of their spare time in the brothels. The regime in charge had begun seizures of Protestant property and their valuables, the latter of which were being shipped to France to pay off the cost of some of their war loans. The former owners of these goods were being compensated for their property in the Jacobite currency of copper and brass coins, a precarious currency whose value had all but plummeted with the arrival of the French, who arrived in town with pockets livened with silver coinage. The new demand for this silver drove up prices in Dublin, rendering the already low Jacobite coins next to worthless. In a more sinister turn, there was also talk of summary imprisonment of Protestants being carried out in Dublin, most likely to prevent any localised Protestant insurrections being started in support of King William's troop landings. To Schomburg, it was clear that the Jacobite regime was attempting to dig in for the long term, so he would have to act swiftly and decisively. In May 1690, Schomburg's forces struck Charlemont, the only Jacobite force left in Ulster. Charlemont surrendered after a short siege with Teague O'Regan, the Jacobite commander, riding to meet his adversaries in dishevelled clothes and reeking of brandy. German mercenaries in the Williamite army felt the Jacobites were scoundrels, barely worth their time, but the victory raised the morale of Williamite forces, given that they were now in total control of Ulster province. 
The troops were further cheered by the news that not only was King William coming to personally take command, but he was bringing their back wages in silver coin, news that was enough to put a smile on anybody's face. The Jacobites had been forced onto defensive for quite some time, an opinion firmly reinforced by a daring raid carried out back in April by the amazingly named Claudesley Shovel, who rowed into Dublin Harbour in a longboat with a few men and with the use of muskets, deception, bluff and straight-up audacity, managed to steal a Jacobite frigate loaded with goods bound for France. This incident, witnessed by King James himself on the harbour, helped demonstrate to the Jacobites their position was nowhere near as ironclad as they believed. Tyrconnell, seemingly aware of this possibility, wrote to James's wife, Mary of Modena, in Saint-Germain, indicating that given William's imminent arrival, it may be difficult for the Jacobites to survive in their current state past the year's end. Rather than just a defeatist missive, Tyrconnell was plotting not only to get Mary of Modena to lobby King Louis of France to get more troops and aid, but probably to get his excuses in early in case the proverbial hit the fan. In response to Schomburg's incursion, the Jacobite forces again marched to Drogheda to await the Williamite force next move. King William finally arrived to Carrickfergus in June 1690. He met with his generals, boarded a coach to Belfast and received a rapturous welcome from the people there, as well as meeting a delegation of the city of Derry. William didn't dally long in Belfast, heading south to Lisbon, with a camp in tow, as well as his own wooden cabin that was built and dismantled in each location so that the king wouldn't have to waste time looking for a house to stay in. The speed with which King William was moving was demonstrated by the fact he'd said to somebody he had not come to Ireland to let the grass grow under his feet. He was here purely to defeat James, end the Jacobite threat to his new kingdom, and return to his preferred theatre in Europe, where the campaign against Louis XIV and France still raged. In the Jacobite camp, King James was growing steadily more nervous and unsure. Nonetheless, he was still eager to enter the fray and take on his nephew and son-in-law, who had usurped his crown. James had been buoyed by reports he'd received from England that certain nobles may be willing to restore his crown and defect from King William and Queen Mary. Mary of Modena wrote to her husband from exile, telling him not to have too much faith in the English nobility, given that, you know, they were the ones who'd overthrown him. She even wrote to Tyrconnell to try and enlist his help, but the desire to fight from King James and his troops was too strong. The Jacobites took part in a small skirmish at Four Mile Pass in late June 1690, but from that point on, it was like King James got cold feet. He feared being sandwiched between two Williamite forces, and in his overly anxious second-guessing mindset, ordered his troops to fall back to Drogheda, feeling that with a river in front of him to act as a natural barrier, he would be safer. This river was the River Boyne. After a sleepless night on the north bank, the Jacobites crossed over to the south bank, between the fords of the river at Oldbridge and Rosnery. Troops began setting up barricades and earthworks, whilst King James and his officers established a command post in the ruins of Donore Church, a mile away from the battlefield. Feeling prepared and ready, the Jacobites prepared for William's arrival. On the morning of June 30th, 1689, King William and his army reached the northern bank of the River Boyne, and at this point, for reasons known only to himself, King William rode to the river's edge, sat down, and began to have a picnic with his officers. The Jacobites watching on the south bank couldn't quite believe their eyes, but they at least had the wherewithal to order a couple of cannons be brought up to aim at the king and fire. One ball killed a nearby officer and two horses, while the other cannonball hit the bank, deflected up into the air, and struck King William in the shoulder. Royal aides ran to the king and rushed him from the riverside, 
The Jacobites roared, cheering in victory, convinced their ambush had just killed the usurping king. And if they'd been three inches more to the centre of his body, they'd have been correct. As it was, William received a blow to the shoulder, a torn coat, some bruising and lacerations, but more importantly, he was alive. The first major thing King William did, once he realised his wounds were not fatal, was ride around his camp to silence rumours of his demise. Still in some pain, he then sat through a very argumentative war council, which settled on sending Schomburg's son Meinhardt with 12,000 men to find a place upstream to cross, whilst the remaining force would assault Oldbridge, crossing the river there. With orders given to hand out shot and powder in the morning, the Williamites rested for the next day's battle. Across the river, King James was again having a case of second-guess-itis. Terrified that any retreat of his would get surrounded or caught and lead to a slaughter, James ordered the Jacobite baggage train and two-thirds of its cannons be packed up and start making their way back towards Dublin. It was his belief that this would clear the way for his troops to easily withdraw should they need to. King James also sent 400 dragoons with Neil O'Neill, Tyrconnell's nephew, to Rosnaree to the ford in the river providing a weak point in the Jacobite defences. James's removal of the artillery was a big mistake and sadly for him, one of several he would make in the hours to come. On July 1st, 1690, what would become known as the Battle of the Boyne began in earnest, with Meinhardt Schomburg taking his men to Slain to ford the river, but his scouts returned to inform him that the bridge there had been rendered unusable, so on the fly, Meinhardt ordered the cavalry in towards Rosnaree, straight to the waiting, relatively fortified Jacobite dragoons under Neil O'Neill, who pinned down the Williamite forces with concentrated fire, stopping their advance for considerable time. The tide turned, however, when Meinhardt's cavalry and field guns arrived on the scene and the artillery pieces began blasting at the Jacobite lines, killing O'Neill and slowly forcing the Jacobite dragoons into falling back. After a bloodied nose, Meinhardt's forces slowly started to cross the Boyne at Rosnaree. William's army was making an inroad towards Dublin. Seeing the younger Schomburg's troops moving inland from his Donore command post, King James felt his greatest fears were coming to fruition and that King William's troops were advancing to circle round and cut off his escape. King James immediately ordered two-thirds of his army to cut them off and counter any potential flanking manoeuvre. This would prove to be a major error as it left his son Berwick, Richard Hamilton, Tyrconnell and their troops to defend Oldbridge against a far larger Williamite force. At 9am, King William's artillery launched an hour-long barrage at Oldbridge before the order was given for the Dutch Blue Guards to cross the river. When they reached the opposing shore, Jacobite forces were waiting for them and cut down the first line of troops with a volley of musket fire. The remaining Dutch charged the Jacobite lines and a dusty, smoky, chaotic, furious battle started. After a short time, the Dutch infantry pushed the Jacobites back, securing themselves a small foothold on the southern bank of the Boyne. Seeing this advance, Tyrconnell ordered the Jacobite cavalry under his command to charge, seeking to dislodge the Williamites from the south bank. Watching the cavalry bear down on his infantry, King William was said to have looked on in horror, repeating, My poor guards, as the horsemen, with the Duke of Berwick at their head, crashed into the Dutch Blue Guard infantry. But the Dutch were ready for them, and they'd formed themselves into square formations and actually began fending off the cavalry with muskets and bayonets. The men accompanying King William that day said in their accounts he looked somewhere between relieved, elated and overjoyed. As William's men held their position on the riverbank, more began to cross and attempt to push their way ashore. 
The Jacobite commander Richard Hamilton tried to rally the infantry to charge towards the Williamites, but many of his troops refused, given that the front line was already under heavy fire. Hamilton, Tyrconnell and Berwick again and again charged the lines of their cavalry in an attempt to beat back the enemy. In the process, Berwick's horse was shot out from under him and Tyrconnell was knocked from his horse, but both moved to safety. The charges caused heavy losses in the Jacobite cavalry, but the Williamite infantry just kept coming closer and closer. Rallying his own cavalry, the Duke of Schomburg led the Williamite horse in to relieve their cavalry, but was shot and killed in the fighting, as was Governor George Walker of Derry, who bled out from a musket ball to the stomach as he attempted to rescue Schomburg from the battlefield. Despite losing men of such standing, King William's army was starting to turn the Jacobites. On seeing their progress, King William decided to personally enter the fray. Mobilising his cavalry regiments downstream from Oldbridge, King William successfully crossed the river and, after a short time to recover from his asthma attack, stood up and rallied his troops to begin assaulting and taking the Jacobite positions. Men had begun to retreat at one point, but at the sight of their king they rallied, save for one man who mistook him for a Jacobite and nearly fired a pistol at him. That particular gentleman became extremely apologetic when he realised he'd nearly shot the king, but the army as a whole began to advance and take the Jacobite positions. King James's men were slowly being pushed closer to their command post at Donore. King James was sat waiting at the command post awaiting developments from the field when a messenger, sent by Tyrconnell, arrived to inform him that the enemy has forced the river, the right wing is defeated. James ordered that Meinhardt Schomburg's men be attacked as soon as possible, only to be informed by Patrick Sarsfield, one of the Jacobites' most respected officers, that the marshes between Meinhardt and the Jacobites were impassable. Upon seeing Williamite forces in the distance moving south from Rossonnery and fearing they were preparing to cut off the Jacobite escape, James ordered a full retreat. The Jacobite army began to flee the field, converging on Delique, in a state of organised chaos. Infantry began throwing away their uniforms and guns in their haste to get away, and the cavalry charged down roads, often knocking over their own infantry and anyone else who got in the way. In a valiant last-ditch effort to buy time for the retreat, Richard Hamilton charged King William's lines. He fought valiantly but was wounded and eventually taken prisoner. When hauled before King William, the man he'd previously betrayed, the King asked Hamilton if the Irish cavalry would attack again. Hamilton replied that on his word of honour, he would believe that they would. Leading King William to reply with a rather acid tongue that given his previous treachery, Hamilton's honour probably wasn't worth much. King William then called a halt to the pursuit of the Jacobites and set up his camp near Delique. Given that the army's baggage was too far away, he decided to go sleep that night in a coach. William had met James, his rival and uncle, in the field of battle and triumphed. Whilst the loss of a thousand men total from both sides is slim in comparison to contemporary battles, the psychological boost to the Williamites and the blow to the morale of the Jacobites was evident in the later campaign. William had forced James to withdraw from the fight and flee. The Jacobite flight left Shannon wide open, and with it, the Williamites were poised to seize Dublin. James, on the other hand, was in full flight. Hours after issuing the retreat orders, James had hurried to Dublin. Arriving at Tyrconnell's residence at Chapelizod, he was met by Francis Talbot, the Lady Tyrconnell. According to stories told later, James made the remark of, your countryman, madam, can run well, oblivious to the fact it was he who'd ordered the retreat. 
Legend has it that Lady Tyrconnell came back at James with, Not quite so well as your majesty, for I see that you have won the race. After an emergency Privy Council meeting, where he was either advised to flee or felt he was left with no choice but to flee, James, after decrying the Irish as having basely fled the field and given up at the first sign of trouble, decided he would not only flee Dublin, but the whole of Ireland. Heading to Duncannon with soldiers covering his retreat, James then sailed to Kinsale, drafting an order assigning Tyrconnell full power in Ireland and all authority to either continue the war or sue for peace. James then transferred to a French ship and returned to France, an exile in Saint-Germain. Here is where we again bid a temporary farewell to James Stuart, formerly King James II of England and Ireland and King James VII of Scotland. We will meet with him again, but his kingdom had slipped from his grasp on the battlefield. Defeat at the Boyne seems to have knocked the fight clean out of James and exposed his fears, as well as his talent for second-guessing himself. His officers on the ground tried to fight as best they could and salvage the day, but James's tactical errors and fear of being taken prisoner led him to decide to abandon Ireland and flee, leaving his followers to their fates. If James felt that his Irish subjects had abandoned him in his hour of need, the feeling was more than mutual, with the Irish believing James ran at the first sign of trouble. The Irish people ended up appending to their king the name of Seamus and Caca, which I would translate on this, a family-friendly podcast, as James the Poop but I will let everyone Google the actual translation. Tyrconnell, left behind at the Boyne by his king, returned to his Dublin home to discover James had ordered Simon Luttrell, the current governor of Dublin, to abandon the capital. Tyrconnell gave the order for his house to be packed up, then issued a general order for the army to quit Dublin and regroup in Limerick. Limerick was the trade hub in Ireland's west and became a rallying point for the Irish Jacobite and French forces to make a stand against King William. The Jacobites had next to no supplies, resorting to looting and plunder from the already ravaged civilian populace. The French troops did the same, ensuring neither force really endeared itself to the locals. Tyrconnell arrived in Limerick in July in an exhausted and low mood. James had fled the country. Dublin was probably in King William's possession at this point, and the army looked defeated. Tyrconnell was getting older and more infirm, and the war was now taking its toll on him. He asked his wife to be sent to France in order to keep her safe. It may have been at this point that Tyrconnell decided to sue for peace and to negotiate, either to buy time until French reinforcements could arrive, or because he genuinely felt the war was over and looked for the easiest way out. The same day Tyrconnell entered Limerick, King William entered the Irish capital of Dublin to rapturous welcome from the city's Protestant population. King William did not have long to celebrate, though, as news began to arrive from England of military disasters that unfolded both there and on the continent. The English Navy had been defeated in an engagement with the French at Beachy Head on June 30th, leaving the coasts vulnerable to a French troop landing and possible invasion. With King William in Ireland, Queen Mary thought fast and ordered the raising of the local militias, keeping England secure for the time being and holding together the nascent joint monarch regime. On July 1st, France had then defeated the Grand Alliance, of which William was a member, in a battle in the Spanish Netherlands. Thousands were either killed or taken prisoner, and France appeared ready not only to dominate the continent, but ready to invade and subdue England itself. King William began to make plans to leave Ireland and return back to London to rally forces to defend the country. By the end of July, 
having based himself into Connell's former house at Chapelizod, William received a new packet of English correspondence. The French had not invaded after all. A small party had raided and sacked the town of Tynmouth in Devon, but then returned to France, where the French navy was confined to port on account of illness amongst the crews and storms that prevented any French ship from leaving port. King William had received yet another stroke of luck. He abandoned plans to return to defend England and move towards Limerick, the main Jacobite base of operations, to deliver what would no doubt be a killing blow to Jacobite forces. Within Limerick, Tyrconnell held a war council with the remaining forces, at which James's Viceroy informed the troops it was his assessment Limerick could only hold out for a few days at most, advising the best course of action would be to consider terms of peace, a position which Lausanne, the head of French forces, concurred with. The Irish and Jacobite forces, however, were in no mood to consider what they thought amounted to a surrender. A shouting match ensued between the war and peace factions, by the end of which it became clear that the war faction had powerful players on board, including the respected Patrick Sarsfield, who brought his considerable influence to bear to continue the fight against King William. Sarsfield's been mentioned in passing previously and was considered a brave, if at times foolhardy, fighter. Sarsfield opposed anything he considered capitulation and this war council meeting ended with no agreement amongst the parties. A second meeting was held, this time without Tyrconnell present. The meeting's outcome was to request that Sarsfield be appointed commander-in-chief of the Irish forces and envoys be sent to James in France to advocate for a continuation of the war. Tyrconnell testily refused both, but also stopped advocating for peace with King William as well. Limerick prepared to receive the Williamite army. Limerick itself was split into two halves, named Irish Town and English Town, and it would be in Irish Town that the Jacobites were going to concentrate their defences, believing it would be a prime target of King William's troops. Using what they had to hand, which was mainly dirt and rocks, the Jacobite army built earthworks and dug trenches to fortify their positions. As in Derry, the Jacobites of Limerick felt prepared, but like Derry, tensions ran high. At this time, the animosity between French forces and the Jacobites began to boil over in several small spats and larger outbreaks of violence, with relations at the top of both chains of command deteriorating. At one point on July 16th, Sarsfield plotted a coup against Tyrconnell, planning his arrest and the disarming of all French forces within the city. But the plans were aborted after Tyrconnell altered his arrangements to prevent the coup. Sarsfield then tried to recruit the Duke of Berwick into his plots. Berwick hadn't suspected that discontent was as high as it was, but railed at Sarsfield for his treason. Sarsfield was probably very happy to discover later, however, that Lausanne was leaving Limerick with the French troops to go and try to defend Galway. The French contingent departed the city, looking upon the Irish people and army with disdain, a look that was probably returned by the Irish people, as relationships at this point had deteriorated to the level that the Irish were glad to see the back of who they considered unhelpful allies. As he left Limerick, Lausanne remarked that the walls of Limerick were in such a terrible state of disrepair they could have been demolished with roasted apples being thrown at them. Other French soldiers bet that the city would last three days. The Jacobites in Limerick vented their frustrations, with one claiming the French had given the kingdom for loss. Unknown to them, it was going to get worse. James had returned to Saint-Germain by July 15th soon after being visited by his cousin King Louis XIV of France. Things started cheerfully enough, but when James asked about possibly recruiting more troops and sending a new force to Ireland, 
Louis began to turn dismissive and frosty. Reports and rumours had made their way to the French king's ear, claiming that not only had the Irish troops fled without putting up a fight, which was true if you count the fact that James ordered their retreat, rather than cast any slight on their fighting capabilities, but that also the city of Limerick, the last bastion of the Jacobites, was preparing to surrender itself to King William, which we also know was untrue. Louis and his administration were coming to the conclusion Ireland was no longer worth the trouble. King Louis offered to transport any soldiers who would not submit to the rule of William to France, but that was it. Like Derry, Limerick was going to have to stand alone against an attacking force. There was no cavalry coming. Next time, we finish off our time in Ireland. There will be sieges, battles and intrigues as the Jacobites make their defiant last stand against the Williamites. King William's army will make its push to remove the Jacobite threat from Ireland and secure the thrones of King William and Queen Mary. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all the people who've listened so far. I've had over a thousand listens now and it's really heartwarming. I'd also like to take the opportunity to apologise to any Irish people listening if my pronunciation has butchered any of your place names. If you drop me a line at Jacobite Podcast on Twitter, I'd be happy to remedy that for you in a future episode. Thank you, and I'll see you all next time.